Along with other privileges, it will be my privilege to introduce our next speaker, uh, Dr. Kim Yancey. Uh, Dr. Yancey is a professor and chair of the Department of Dermatology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. He is certified by the American Board of Dermatology and holds subspecialty competency in dermatologic immunology and diagnostic laboratory immunology. Dr. Yancey is a member of the American Society for Clinical Investigation, the Society for Investigative Dermatology, and the American Academy of Dermatology. He is a former director and vice president of the American Board of Dermatology, a current member of the Executive Committee on Dermatology Foundation, and a current deputy editor of the Journal Events of Investigative Dermatology. Please welcome Dr. Yancey. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you very much for that uh, nice introduction, and uh, thank you for this invitation uh, to participate in your conference. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I'd like to uh, congratulate the organizers on putting together a wonderful program. Many people uh, that I admire. Uh, regret that my other responsibilities have kept me from being here more, but I look forward to being here with you this morning. I was asked to speak about uh, the spectrum of treatment alternatives for patients with mucosal vesicular bullous diseases, and that's a, uh, uh, it can be viewed as a very narrow or a very broad subject area, uh, and I accepted that challenge, uh, and I want to speak with you today about that. Uh, and I want to acknowledge at the outset that I have no conflicts of interest uh, regarding this presentation uh, that I'm going to present to you today that I need to disclose. Um, for many years, uh, I worked in a pretty unique place. I worked at the National Institutes of Health and the National Cancer Institute, where I devoted my practice entirely to treatment of patients with autoimmune blistering diseases. And many of these diseases are uh, extraordinarily rare uh, I would say all of these diseases are extraordinarily rare, uh, associated with great morbidity, uh, sometimes a risk for mortality. Uh, I was also in the Cancer Institute where I saw many people with mucosal toxicity from chemotherapy, and I had a chance to work with people who uh, were care providers uh, to certain organ systems, uh, and I garnered a lot of um, experience uh, and knowledge, and, and I, I think I still have an awful lot to learn, but I thought I would share with you today sort of an overview, not only of rare diseases that affect, affect mucosal surfaces, but some more common diseases, talk a little bit about uh, different local care measures for different mucosal-specific sites, such as the eyes, the nose, the mouth, uh, the anogenital region, and then spend a little bit of time talking about what happens when local care measures fail and people have to move on to systemic therapy uh, with uh, corticosteroids or corticosteroids in combination with other immunosuppressive agents. And give you a little bit of information also about where uh, some treatments are headed for patients uh, with autoimmune immunobullous diseases. Now, one of the things about these diseases affecting mucosa is, is that I really consider them to be orphan diseases. Uh, very few people um, you know, see a lot of these patients. 
Uh, no one develops a great deal of expertise, and these patients may present to any number of care providers. Some people go and see an oral medicine physician, some go to a dentist, some go to an ophthalmologist, uh, but yet no single sector, no single sector in medicine uh, really gains a lot of experience in taking care of these patients. So it's very hard for patients to get connected to a, a knowledgeable care provider. Many of these people have rather advanced disease uh, before they're seen. Um, they also often uh, require co-management, and co-management in today's world is a very hard thing to coordinate. It's a very hard thing to pay for. Many of these diseases are treatment re uh, resistant, uh, and they require considerable resources. There are also diseases, because they're on mucosal surfaces, they often tend to scar, and in these diseases, scarring can only pre be prevented. It's virtually impossible to reverse that scarring. Now, some of the diseases that I'm going to talk about today in an overview fashion, not in depth, are listed on this slide, and we're going to go through these and try to pick up some principles and guiding thoughts about how they might be managed. Now, desquamative gingivitis is a disease that largely resides in the realm of oral medicine physicians and dentists. It's a gingival disease that is characterized by loss of tissue exposure uh, of the base of the teeth uh, and loss of teeth. And many people think this is a form of, of another disorder called uh, mucous membrane pemphigoid. This is a very rare disease. It's autoimmune in its basis, and it can attack mucous membranes in the mouth, the eye, the nose. And these patients have autoantibodies that target epidermal basement membrane, cause skin fragility and blister formation. And here you see a patient who has diseases on the uh, on the lip going into the sulcus on the maxillary side, uh, creating erosive lesions, which can be quite painful and debilitating. Mucous membrane epimphigoid can also affect the larynx and cause distortion in this realm, can cause hoarseness. It can affect the vocal cords and result in loss of the airway, requiring tracheostomy in rare patients. It can also affect the anogenital area, and many patients with this disease uh, have really quite disfiguring and painful uh, or uh, anogenital uh, erosive and blistering lesions. Lichen planus is an inflammatory skin disease. This disease uh, often affects the skin, uh, but it can affect the mouth, and many women have a variant form of this disease that is characterized uh, by um, anogenital involvement uh, as well as uh, oral involvement in a so-called oral genital syndrome. And these patients have inflammatory lesions that often become erosive. They can affect the buccal mucosa, uh, the gums, and the tongue. Uh, and in some patients with chronic and long-standing oral mucosal disease, there is an increased risk for cancer, particularly at the base of the tongue. Lupus erythematosus is a disease that you're all familiar with. It, it can cause achelitis, but patients with systemic lupus erythematosus often have uh, erosive lesions on their hard palate or inside their mouth, as shown on this slide. Pemphigus vulgaris, uh, rare disease, long name. It's an autoimmune blistering disease. 
caused by autoantibodies that target proteins that help cells in the epidermis uh, stay together. So this is a disease of cell-cell adhesion in the epidermis. We know the autoantibodies are pathogenic. And in people with pemphigus vulgaris, the disease presents in the oral mucosa typically or on a mucosal surface and over time uh, becomes mucocutaneous involving mucous membranes uh, and also the skin. A disease that's quite rare and quite dreaded is perineoplastic pemphigus, a disease that um, is commonly seen in patients with B-cell lymphomas, uh, and it's a disease that's characterized almost invariably by severe stomatitis. Uh, and this is a true perineoplastic reaction between crossed humoral immune responses to the tumor and to the skin. And these people have very uh, treatment resistant and almost uniformly life-threatening disease. Uh, erythema multiforme. Many of you uh, see patients with uh, erythema multiforme minor. Uh, HSV-induced EM commonly affects the labial mucosa uh, and can be a source of great morbidity and is of relevance to some of the principles I'll talk about today. And some of you in pediatrics also see children uh, that can develop uh, this disorder and get quite hemorrhagic crusting on their lips because they manipulate bite. Uh, and rub their lips because of the inflammatory nature of the lesions. After stomatitis or canker sores, something we almost all have, most people have minor uh, after uh, lesions. There are, there is a variant form of the disease called Sutton's disease or aftus major, where people can have really quite um, treatment resistant, large and progressive uh, AFTI that can be a great source of morbidity. Uh, this is a very common problem and, and in some patients is a considerable cause of uh, morbidity. Lesions that often dominate on the mu movable mucosa inside the mouth. And finally, uh, if those of you that work in hospitals see patients with drug-induced stomatitis, very common among patients receiving chemotherapy. Some suggest that between 400,000 and 1.2 million people a year develop this complication. Thursday night, I saw a patient in consultation at the university hospital whose status posted uh, ablative chemotherapy and a bone marrow transplant who has stomatitis that's as bad or worse than that shown here. These people uh, have considerable problems from this. It's more than the pain and the discomfort of the event itself. Uh, these people are at risk for bleeding. Many of them are cytopenic. These patients are at risk for aspiration. They're immunosuppressed. Uh, and in some cases, chemotherapy has to be delayed or deferred because of the severity of chemo-induced stomatitis. So what are some uh, regional treatment-specific considerations uh, that one can hold in mind when you see a patient that has mucosal disease uh, and you begin to approach these patients? And, and I thought that I would do this uh, in sort of an organ-specific stepwise manner, um, and I hope that some practical information comes through here. I want you to know I'm still a student of this field. I feel that I have a lot to learn because a lot of what I'm going to say relates to other medical specialty content areas uh, and I'm cut from a bit of a different cloth. Now this is a patient who has circuitizing conjunctivitis. She has uh, an inflammatory autoimmune blistering disease that has affected the mucous membranes around her eye. And at first glance, the changes here might be relatively subtle. So I wanna spend a little time talking about how subtle some of these changes can be. 
Here you see her uh, conjunctiva, and there's the palpebral conjunctiva and the bulbar conjunctiva. And if you look closely here, you can see this is nice and pink, but this part of her um, uh, lower conge on the medial aspect is quite white uh, or much lighter in color. It's not as pink uh, as the area in the mid-pupillary line or laterally. And this area signifies a part of the conjunctiva that's been subject to inflammation and scarring. And these people will lay down lamellar fibrosis or, or, or bands of fibrous tissue parallel to the surface of the epithelium uh, in this region. Also uh, in the region that's affected, I should say. You can also see there's asymmetry in the distribution of the eyelashes on her lower lid. Uh, you know, it's just a simple common sense thing. Here she has normal eyelashes, outwardly projected, and here there, there's an absence of lashes. And you can also see, although it doesn't project too well here, she has two lashes or maybe more that are, that are turning inwards towards her eye itself, the globe of the eye, uh, or as my mom used to say, the eyeball. And that's an example of trochiasis, and the lashes are whipping against the eye itself and can cause considerable irritation and, and can cause injury to the eye, particularly if it overlays the cornea. You want to be able first to recognize this, that there's eye involvement here. Many times these people will tell you they have a foreign body sensation. They think they have grit in their eye. They'll have photophobia, tearing on exposure to sunlight. And if you look at their eye, this is an eye that needs to see not me, but an ophthalmologist. They need to be examined by a slit lamp, and they need to be questioned at second and third order to see what's going on here. Very tempting to look at an eyelash like this and pull that thing out. And indeed, that is a, something that ophthalmologists do. But remember, if you start pulling lashes, that, what that lash will grow back. And when that lash grows back, it's going to be like stubble. And the stubble of a beard is more abrasive than the, the stubble of an of a outgrowing beard is more abrasive than the long hair of a beard itself. So I usually don't pull lashes. I send them to ophthalmologists for an evaluation, for consideration of that intervention. And some ophthalmologists will not only pull a lash, but they'll destroy the follicles either through a thermal mechanism uh, or uh, through a, uh, a, a, another physical intervention that destroys uh, the follicle itself. Now what about mucous membrane pemphigoid affecting the eye, circuitizing conjunctivitis that's left untreated? Whether well, disease can progress. And here you see a patient that's developing symblepharide, adhesive bands of scar between the uh, palpebral and the bulbar conjunctiva, these webs connecting and distorting the lid impairing the ability of the lid to move normally, impairing the ability of the eye to close normally. Do you wake up in the morning with eye pain because they sleep at night and their eyes dry out? The other thing about this disease, it, it scars not only the conjunctival, but it destroys mucosal uh, goblet cells that produce mucus. Tear is a combination of different solutions. It's not just salt water. It has a mucosal phase that keeps the tears from evaporating. And when you have a scarring disease around the eye, the eye will tend to dry out and it's something to look for. Remember, this is what you want to avert. No one can ever criticize you for having someone's eyes checked early. These diseases affecting mucous membranes around the eye can be sight-threatening. And remember, fibrosis can only be prevented. Very, very hard to reverse it. 
And uh, continuing on in my display of pictures that I would not have shown my mother, I will show you this eye, which came in late, where you can see the lower lids completely obliterated, fused to the, uh, the globe of the eye itself. The fibrosis is crossing the limbus of the cornea. Most of the lashes are gone. And this is a patient that is about to approach a true sight-threatening um, uh, event as a consequence of a chronic and untreated, or perhaps treated and unresponsive case of ocular mucous membrane pemphigoid. So a lot of the uh, summary data about ocular care is uh, already outlined on this slide. This slide is uh, present in the handout, so I'm not going to uh, spend a lot of time talking here. But don't hesitate to get involved an ophthalmologist. And you know, not all ophthalmologists are equal. Not all ophthalmologists are anterior specialists. Not all ophthalmologists are comfortable treating these patients. But they do have slit lamps. They're very good at identifying disease. And they often know colleagues who have an affinity to provide care for these patients. And just as the eyes can be involved with these mucosal, erosive, and inflammatory diseases, so can the nasal passages. And as a dermatologist, I was remarkably unqualified to even question people about did they have blisters inside their nose. And you know, I used to ask people that all the time. Do you get blisters in your nose? And they'd say, well, how would I know? And I'd say, good point. I guess you wouldn't know. And, but as you see these patients and you talk to them, what you find are, are several things that have emerged. And I'm sure that I still have a lot to learn from talking to more of these patients. But some will tell you, I always feel like I have a gunk inside my nose. And, and essentially, they'll tell you they feel like they have concretions in their nose. When they get up in the morning and they blow their nose, there's a lot of exudate, and that's usually followed by some bleeding. Now, it may be just a tinge of blood on the tissue, uh, or in people with more advanced disease. Uh, they can even have periods where they have a drip, drip, drip kind of bleed from the nose. Uh, these people are telling you they often have uh, post-nasal drainage, recurrent bouts of sinusitis. They feel stuffed up all the time. Sometimes they'll push on their air passages to sort of uh, help uh, remove or, or loosen these concretions. Uh, and these people with long-standing chronic disease can really not only scar and distort the turbinates within the nasal cavity, but I've had some patients lose a, a complete nair passage because, again, bridging scars develop and it just closes off uh, that uh, particular aperture. Uh, working with otolaryngologists is a great thing to do. They have devices that are, uh, they can easily use to visualize the nasal passages and the nasal pharynx. The other thing that I want to put in a plea for here today is uh, training yourself and your patients how to do nasal irrigations. When people have a lot of uh, um, mucosal injury, uh, they lose the top layer of cells. They lose the epidermis, the epithelium within the nasal passages, and tissue fluid leaks out and dries and produces these concretions. If they irrigate their nose, uh, it makes a huge difference. They feel symptomatically better very quickly. They can irrigate their nose with, with, with a piston-driven syringe, a bulb syringe, or they actually make some very nice devices now, little cups, pots, and bottles that you can Google and find for nasal irrigation. You can use saline, you can use tap water. The key thing is to irrigate and remove this exudate. So any kind of medications you're going to provide have a chance to get down to the affected tissue and not sit on top 
of, of the crust and exudate that builds up in these passages. Once they irrigate, uh, they can then cover their passages with a nasal irrigant uh, or a nasal lubricant. Uh, Poneris is an example of such a lubricant. It comes as a spray or a drop. Uh, there are others, many um, academic medical centers, many large hospitals will have things called nose oil uh, that are available over the counter that are just basically uh, humectants that will uh, lubricate the nasal passages and treat the, the injury and the, and, and, the, and the lesion there the same way you would if you did a shave biopsy and put a little uh, petrolatum on top of it to, to seal the tissue, promote moisturization, promote reepithelialization, and diminish the amount of serum and blood that comes out and forms these uh, terrible crusts. Many of these people do need courses of antibiotics, and if you can get their nose decrusted and clean, they're also uh, often amenable to treatment with intranasal steroid sprays. Moving on to the mouth. Some of these diseases affect the gums. When the gums get affected early on, they often look like this. If you ever look at your gums, the gum adjacent to the teeth, the marginal gingiva, is often a little darker, in, a little different in color from the gingiva near the base and the sulcus. This gingiva in normal people is stippled. If you dry your gums off and look at them in the mirror, you'll see that they're sort of subtly irregular. Uh, and that stippling has to do with the way the fibroblasts insert into the epidermal basement membrane to help hold that tissue in place. In these people that have inflammatory mucosal disease, uh, they lose all that and their gingiva become quite red, friable, and in this case, the patient has lost most of their epithelium. You can also see how her dentition is yellowed here, but she's also beginning to build up plaque uh, at the base of this tooth. And, and these people, um, they don't like to brush their teeth. Not only uh, does it hurt, but it bleeds like crazy, and they, and, and they get into a downward spiral uh, of care. Here's a patient with more advanced disease. You can see uh, she has the changes you saw on the last slide on the maxillary gingiva, on the mandibular side here below her incisors. This has progressed to the point she has gingival retraction. Uh, she's losing tissue here. Uh, and eventually the periodontal ligament that holds the tooth in place will be damaged. Some of these people, you can place your finger on their teeth and move their teeth around. Many of these people, as a consequence of longstanding mucosal disease, will lose teeth. The only thing worse than these diseases is this disease with dentures on top of it. So you really want to preserve all the dentition that you can. You can also see this patient has erosive lesions here on her lips. She has a form of mucous membrane pemphigoid that has affected her mouth. She also, you can see that she has great difficulty cleaning her teeth. Now in patients like this, I think brushing is key, uh, but it's a really tough thing. So you really have to work with patients to get them to do this. I tell them to use pediatric toothbrush. Get the ones with a short handle. Don't get the firm bristles, get the soft bristles and really brush your teeth. Pick a toothpaste that does not contain sodium lauryl sulfate. Sodium lauryl sulfate is a um, detergent. It's what makes toothpaste foam. And that often creates burning and irritation in these folks' mouth. There are certain types of toothpaste that lack sodium lauryl sulfate. You can find those on the internet. Um, and some people uh, like those. 
Um, I also recommend that they clean uh, their teeth several times a year, not twice a year, but maybe three, maybe four, depending on how little they can do for themselves. I went through a phase where I used a lot of water-driven cleaning devices or even tried some ultrasonic toothbrushes, but I found those are expensive, and I think the pediatric toothbrushes with the short handles and the soft bristles is the way I go. I, I think I've had better luck getting these people to floss. If you get them to buy the little uh, plastic devices that kids use with the little flo floss bridges that they can use because they have a little bit more control there. Um, and these people need a lot of encouragement uh, because this is a very painful process and they almost always bleed. But like I say, without good dental hygiene, the problem accelerates and it can become a race to the bottom. These diseases can affect not only the gingiva within the mouth, but also the buccal mucosa, the retromolar space, uh, the tonsillar areas as shown here. They can also affect the roof of the mouth uh, and the tongue. The tongue is exquisitely um, uh, tender uh, when, in fact, when affected by these diseases. And of all the sites in the mouth that I think uh, are a source of great pain are, are lesion sites uh, on the tongue. Uh, so how do I treat these? I, I treat these by using a lot of topical corticosteroids. And if you talk to oral medicine uh, docs, if you talk to otolaryngologists, if you talk to dermatologists, everybody's got their favorite way to do it. Uh, but a lot of what I do uh, relates to the use uh, of topical uh, clobetazole. So I use a very potent agent, and I prefer to use ointments. Some people like gels. I tend to use ointments. What I try to get people to do, and, and I'm sure that I'm imperfect when I try to do this, because it's very uh, sometimes hard to explain all these things in a busy clinic, but is keep in mind several things. One is if you can be deliberate about this and really devote time and effort to it, you're going to get a better outcome. It's not like I'll just take a dab of this stuff and rub it around the sores in my mouth using my tongue. I try to have them pat the lesional site dry with a tissue or a Kleenex. I'll then have them rub the clobetazole on, and I'll try to use that clobetazole aggressively in people that have relatively site-specific disease or more restricted disease. If their whole mouth is involved, they're going to need systemic treatment in most cases. Um, I, some people don't like to put their finger in their mouth. If they don't, I'll give them uh, gloves. Uh, I'll tell them to cut the fingers off the gloves so they get multiple uses out of those, those gloves or wash the gloves and use them multiple times. And I'll tell them to really not only put the medicine on with the glove, but spend some time rubbing it in place. And I really place emphasis on how important it is to do this before bed at night. Because if you can get them to spend a fair amount of time treating themselves before bed, they do it, they fall asleep, they're going, their secretions will go down and they'll get a lot more benefit uh, out of that intervention. If they're just taking a, a, a squirt of this stuff and they're sort of just smeared it on quickly, they're not going to get very far. In people that have disease that's more anterior in the mouth, either on movable mucosa or even on the hard palate, I will sometimes inject those sites with intralesional corticosteroids. Uh, and sometimes you can get remarkably uh, good benefit from that. I don't go towards the back of the mouth uh, where I'm afraid I might elicit a cough reflex. Uh, and I really don't do gingiva very much. I have another trick for gingiva, but I don't, you know, I, I don't think I've ever injected gingiva uh, for therapeutic uh, intervention. 
I've already mentioned a lot of the things uh, that I've uh, listed on this slide and included in the handout. I also try to find dentists, and not all dentists are comfortable taking care of these patients, but each community I've been in typically has one or two oral medicine specialists that have an interest in these people and a lot of skills that can help them along a great deal. The other thing I want to spend a little bit of time talking about are the use of dental trays for treatment of disease that is erosive on the gums or the gingiva. In people with desquamative gingivitis, lichen planus, uh, lupus, uh, or even pemphigus that's really dominant on the gums, you, you can have an oral medicine physician make vinyl trays. Uh, and these trays are used to, you load the tray up with the clobetazole and then you fit the tray down over the gingiva. You don't want the hard material like the bite guard stuff that people sleep with at night or that your kids play football with. What you want is a vinyl material because it's not going to sit between the teeth. It's actually going to go down to the base of the gums uh, and allow the steroids to be applied under occlusion. And this can work very, very well uh, to keep people from uh, diminishing the inflammatory aspect uh, of their mucosal disease. And it's a trick I picked up when I was at Walter Reed many years ago, and I had a colleague in, at the Marquette School of Dentistry that was very good at making these, um, and I offer that option to you uh, as something to consider if you ever have patients with bad erosive gingival disease. Now, there are many different topical agents that are available uh, to put in the mouth uh, as uh, topical corticosteroids. Many of those are uh, and topical uh, palliative agents to provide relief to these patients. And many of these are listed on the next several slides. They're also included in your handout. Um, I've already told you a lot of what I do. Uh, I'll even tell you a lot of what I don't do. Uh, I'm not sure I'm right, but I'll tell you what I don't do. I don't use a lot of topical uh, anesthetics uh, unless I'm treating a specific site. I don't like uh, patients rinsing their mouths with topical anesthetics because a lot of the patients I see are quite old, they're quite infirm, or they're sick, or they're on immunosuppressives. And if you've ever filled your mouth up with viscosilocaine or gargled with it, it, it creates really impaired sen sensations, and secretions just tend to go everywhere. Uh, and I'm a really uh, afraid some of my patients might uh, aspirate. I don't use a lot of mouthwashes, although I have at times. Um, I, I have used dexamethasone, swish and spit, and I have gotten into situations where I've experienced what I call dexamethasone, swish and swallow. I've, uh, I've immunosuppressed a few people who, who didn't understand they were supposed to spit it out. They just were old and they just swallowed it. Um, this additional topical agents are listed here. We're placing emphasis on topical corticosteroids. Again, I've told you I use clobetazole ointment typically. And there are many things available over the counter. Some I use, some I don't, that are listed on this particular slide. When I went to med school, uh, you know, the only thing I knew about mucosal disease was put Kenalog and Orbase on it. Uh, I've not enjoyed using Orbase, nor have many of my patients. It's really gritty. If you've ever put it in your mouth, it, it, it tends to, it's very adhesive. It's very good at covering uh, like an aftus ulcer, but to use on broad-based sites of disease, it's not practical. And even in, after it's been in place for a while, it tends to come off in chunks and, and it's very gritty uh, inside the mouth. And it's, a lot of patients don't use it. If you just have focal disease, I, I think it can be okay. 
Many of the other things that are listed here, I've not had so much experience with. I have used Xylactin. Xylactin is a commercially, I, I don't have any relationship to Xylactin. It, it's basically a, a, a gel that when you, you let it dry on the mucosa will form a polymer. Uh, and it can be good if people have focal disease and they just want to get through a meal. If you get the Xylactin B, it has benzocaine, so it's a little uh, anesthesia applied at that focal site. Um, and it can burn a bit when you put it on. Uh, I'm not going to go through the other agents. You can, you can read about those. Um, and, you, you know, I've not used a lot of aftosol. Uh, some people do. It's a really a paste. It's a, a carboxyl acid derivative, and it's an antitopical anti-inflammatory that in people with aftos lesions has been shown to promote healing. You're supposed to put it on four times a day. Um, I, can only, I can drink coffee four times a day, but I, I could not apply something to my own mouth four times a day. When you're, when you're seeing patients that have disease in the mouth, I mean, it's a good idea to look in their eyes. It's a good idea to know a few questions to ask them about their nose. And it's a good idea to know a few questions to ask them about their throat. Because many of these people will have disease uh, in, in their oropharynx or uh, in the, um, the, the, uh, the region of their larynx. And if you, you, you don't know uh, what to look for, it's hard to find it. Uh, but we're now taking people uh, who have mucosal disease and we're going down the throat, past the epiglottis to the region uh, of the larynx uh, and the esophagus, where some patients with these diseases will have alterations. This is a, a, a photograph of one of my patients who had an autoimmune blistering disease. Um, and he had involvement of his larynx. And if you don't speak the larynx fluently, uh, you can look at this and see that the tissue here is not right, as mom used to say. So this would be the front of the patient. This would be his back. Here are his vocal cords here. These are the arytenoids. And you can see that not only are these uh, distorted and asymmetric side to side, but there's uh, fibrous webs. You saw those fibrous webs of scar formation in the eye. Here's an analogous structure in the throat linking his larynx to his posterior pharyngeal wall. These are the piriform sinuses. They're quite big. Another fibrous band. This is the aperture to his esophagus. He would swallow. His food was pool in his piriform sinus, and then he would rub his neck like a pelican to get any nutrients through this particular site. Um, this was a patient that was losing weight and had a lot of morbidity. Fortunately, the ENT docs were able to reduce this band and reopen his proximal esophagus. The bad news was this band, which looks, when you look down on it, it looks like a web. It was actually a vertically oriented stricture. He had been subject to esophageal strictures and had been treated with boulage, where uh, linear shearing pressures were applied to the esophagus. And he had scarred not side to side across the esophagus, but along its transverse dimension. So this actually extended down his esophagus uh, about five or six centimeters. We certainly could not, it could not be reduced more than about uh, one centimeter. And there's a lot of important vascular structures that run through the neck right in this neighborhood. So it's not an easy area to work in, and it's an area that's easy to induce laryngospasm when, when you're trying to uh, treat a, a distorted larynx surgically. Um, this patient's not the only patient I've had who's had an esophageal stricture. This is a different patient with a mucosal predominant blistering disease that had a stricture within his esophagus. This was his maximal mid-esophageal diameter. 
uh, he was subject to dilatation using a technique that I like, which is uh, balloon dilatation under direct visualization done by gastroenterologists at Walter Reed. Here you see the balloon in place, and here you see the gain in diameter that he experienced immediately, uh, and he was able to resume fairly good nutrition. Uh, over the years, he eventually needed uh, a feeding gastrostomy, but it took 15 years for him to get to the point where that was necessary. So these diseases, uh, if you see a patient and they're telling you, uh, not only do I, you know, my mouth hurt like crazy, but I have trouble swallowing. When I swallow, I have to clear my throat. And it's swallowing with water that makes them want to clear their throat. They'll actually be able to swallow semi-solid food or even sometimes quasi-solid food pretty well. But if you have, you know, I ask people, after you drink water, do you have to <clears throat> sort of clear your throat? And uh, do, you, do you sort of have a low-grade need to do that? Because the, the water will be more fluid and will, will seek out an incompetent tissue site more effectively than a big chunk of food will. Some of them will complain of pain. Some will say it hurts here. Some will say it hurts here. Some will say it hurts here. Some will complain of reflux. Uh, and remember, uh, these people, uh, they have mucosal fragility, and so if they have reflux, uh, they're at risk for developing, um, you know, secondary injury to these diseased tissue sites and even laryngeal, uh, laryngeal problems uh, and pulmonary problems as a consequence of GERD that can overlay uh, these other particular problems. Now, there's some patients who have too much mucosal disease I'm, I'm really not making phone calls up here. I'm just checking to see how much time is left. Um, um, I wish I could make phone calls up here, but uh, uh, there's some people that have too much disease to treat with local care measures and topical corticosteroids alone. And for these patients, uh, they usually end up on being treated with systemic immunosuppressives. And as true for many other diseases, we typically start with systemic glucocorticoids. And when I trained in dermatology, if you had a patient with pemphigus, with pemphigoid, it was not uncommon for those patients to be treated with 100, 120 milligrams of prednisone daily. If you trained in Miami from my generation, those patients might have been treated with as much as 200 milligrams uh, of daily prednisone, doses that you would not see in today's world. Uh, most people now limit their induction phase of treatment uh, to doses no higher than one milligram per kilogram per day, given as a single morning dose. There are other regimens that are more aggressive, but those are increasingly uh, used uh, less frequently. Uh, but prednisone is a mainstay of treatment, uh, but think of it as something that we use to control the inflammatory phase of the disease. If the disease is based in an autoimmune response, we often add a steroid sparing agent to glucocorticoids uh, to minimize the doses that are required and the duration that is required to treat people with daily prednisone. There are a lot of side effects from giving people systemic corticosteroids. Those are listed here, they're listed in your handout. What I wanna do today is talk a little bit about uh, steroid-induced osteoporosis, because it's something that I think in our practice uh, we can make an impact on patients. And I think that these patients are being treated for durations with these drugs, and there are a few guiding principles that I try to keep in mind when I manage their cases. I hope I always keep them in mind. Sometimes in busy clinics, it's hard to keep all these things in mind. 
First of all, steroids induce bone loss and they induce it quickly. It's really within the first six months of therapy that most trabecular bone is lost. Many times patients come to me and they, I saw a patient yesterday. She has a rare disease called epidermolysis bullosa acquisita, autoimmunity to collagen 7 and epidermal basement membrane. Widespread sites of involvement, has had the disease for about two years, and she's been through roller coaster rides of being on 60 a day of prednisone, tapered down to 10 over three or four months, only to flare, uh, go back up to 60 and come down to you know, 20, and then go back up to 60 and come down to 40. And you know, I think that you know, we know enough now to know that these people are better off to be treated with higher doses of daily steroids early, um, you know, add another combined immunosuppressive to, uh, to basically impact T cell biology, uh, and then later over time diminish their prednisone and, and avoid monotherapy and these roller coaster rides on prednisone, often administered without protection for calcium loss and where a lot of trabecular bone is lost in the early phase of treatments. This problem is uh, particularly common in children, postmenopausal women, and adolescents. Steroids cause bone loss by four major ways. One is that they um, they inhibit osteoblasts, the cells that make bone. They stimulate osteoclasts, the cells that remodel and chew up bone. They impair calcium metabolism, and they promote calcium excretion through the urine. Now, what do I try to remember to do in my office? And, and I try to remember this when I see patients, and, and that is to, um, to, to try to follow the following guidelines. I try to make sure that patients who are gonna be maintained on daily corticosteroids for extended periods receive supplemental calcium. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, I also give them vitamin D. Uh, I'm no longer sure that 800 international units of vitamin D is the right amount of vitamin D to give them, but that is what I still give them. I increasingly try to give these patients uh, calcium citrate rather than calcium carbonate, uh, and I'll have a little bit more to say about that in a minute. Try to make people aware that a high salt diet will also increase their likelihood of, of osteoporosis uh, induced by glucocorticoids, and I encourage them to get exercise. And the only thing that I encourage them to do is walk. I don't encourage them to run. I don't encourage them to do aerobics. I encourage them to walk. I do use bisphosphonates. I'll have a little bit more to say about those in a few minutes. And I will tell you that um, uh, bone mineral density can be quite helpful. There have been different phases of my career. Uh, when I was at the NIH, I was very good about bone mineral density testing. Uh, I could had access to that testing very quickly. It was of no cost to my patients. Could get three-point determinations. I got very good data. Uh, but I have found that I'm uh, probably um, less likely to get that in other practice environments. But I am very, I try very hard to make sure that all my patients get calcium, get vitamin D, get educated about bone loss, given considerations for treatment with bisphosphonate, and encouraged to have low-salt diets and some exercise in their daily life. Now, there's some things I don't do. Um, and we heard earlier about uh, establishing boundaries within practice. There are some things that steroids do to cause bone loss that there, there are some places I will not go. So if I'm trying to uh, you know, supplement uh, a patient who is on systemic corticosteroids for extended periods and they're losing calcium and they have a strong history of kidney stones, uh, I'm going to probably get the help of an endocrinologist or a nephrologist in providing 
uh, therapy for those patients. I don't make decisions about uh, sex hormone replacement in men or women. I, I no longer, I, I went through a phase where I attempted to monitor urinary calciums, but n neither I nor my staff had any idea how to work with that data. If I'm having to uh, look at urinary calcium excretion and give consideration to use of thiazides, I get internist involved. It doesn't fit within my system of practice. And in patients who have bone pain or patients who are not treat, uh, candidates for treatment with um, bisphosphonates uh, and, and they're candidates for treatment with calcitonin, uh, again, I don't do that. You do well what you do often. I don't do this often, and so I get help. So I've tried to divide this into what I feel comfortable doing, what I don't feel comfortable doing, uh, and I'm very convinced that I have a lot more to learn in this area. And, and I'll show you some data just within the last months of what has uh, come out of bone metabolism research and uh, some clinical studies and, and, and gives us some things to think about. Now bisphosphonates are everywhere. You can't turn on television without Sally Field talking about how good she feels. Uh, and these drugs have really revolutionized bone loss in the elderly, and they've clearly shown a protective effect for hip fracture and other sources of great morbidity in the elderly. But these patients, a lot of our patients now are being maintained on these drugs for quite a long period of time. So when I use these drugs, I try to keep several things in mind. I'm using them while they're on systemic corticosteroids. I still don't use them in premenopausal women. Some people do. Um, and I'm very careful because these drugs can be associated with esophageal irritation, and many of my patients have esophageal mucosal disease, or they have mucosal disease that's susceptible to develop in the esophagus, so I want to be very careful uh, about how they're using these drugs. If you're going to use bisphosphonates, keep in mind that these drugs have been associated with osteonecrosis of the jaw. Rare, dominates in cancer patients, dominates in, pa in patients getting bisphosphonates IV. But remember, these diseases, this complication, and this is a very dreaded complication, often develops in people with pre-existing dental abnormalities or patients who need dental surgeries. Remember those slides I've showed you. Most, a lot of my patients have dental abnormalities. Um, and so I try to make sure that my patients know that this is a possible complication, particularly if they're going to see a dentist or to have an intervention performed because um, these uh, risks are more common in people who are on bisphosphonates and undergo uh, a dental, a major dental intervention. This is a reference that provides good summary data about this uh, complication. Um, and remember, it's a little bit more common on the mandibular side uh, than on the maxillary, uh, but something that I hope that, that you don't see. The other thing that I have seen is that I have treated some patients with bisphosphonates, and they tell me, gosh, I just feel terrible. Well, how do you feel terrible? I'm stiff. I just can't move. I, my bones, my muscles, my joints hurt all over. Very well recognized now that bisphosphonates can cause severe bone and muscle pain in some patients. When the drug is stopped, in many patients, this goes away quickly. In other patients, the recovery time much slower. Something to keep in mind if you're going to give people bisphosphonates and they tell you soon after they begin these that they just do feel unwell. 
In the last year and the last two or three years, there's been a lot of reports suggesting that bisphosphonates, while they may be protective of fractures, if those drugs are used for extended periods of time, may place patients at risk for atypical hip fractures, hip fractures that are subtrochanteric, hip fractures that are often bilateral. We don't know yet if that's the case. But just this year, in September of this year, uh, a commission uh, published uh, in the Journal of Bone and Mineral Metabolism uh, a summary statement, a consensus statement about this, indicating that additional and prospective study for this possibility should exist. And I think it's raising concern about whether patients should be left on bisphosphonates indefinitely or that these drugs should be used for a defined periods of time or that we actually know yet the best way to use these drugs. The FDA tests people for early adverse events before drugs are released. It's only as experience accumulates over time do we learn about some of these complications that can emerge uh, late in the course of treatment. And this September also online in, in the British literature, uh, a group reported uh, that uh, bisphosphonate use for greater than five years or associated with greater than 10 prescriptions over five years uh, was associated with a twofold increase risk for esophageal cancer. Now these are in normal patients, what it would be in a patient with a mucosal disease where there's lots of uh, uh, you know, uh, renewal of the epithelium taking place as a consequence of injury, we don't know. But again, this is another thing to be aware of uh, and that these drugs, while they're advertised on television and while they've helped uh, so many people, that there may yet be uh, consequences that we're not fully aware of. So just keep an eye on, on this literature. The other thing, and I'm getting a little far afield from mucosal diseases, but, but I hope not entirely, uh, another major adverse event relating to the treatment of systemic corticosteroids relates to GI bleeds. I think the best evidence for risk of GI bleeds is that steroids do seem to increase the risk of GI bleeds in patients who are on NSAIDs. And in my world, everybody's on NSAIDs, myself included. So if I'm peeping patients on treatment with systemic corticosteroids, uh, I, uh, particularly if they're on a blood thinner, uh, I will put them typically on a protein pump inhibitor because I want to minimize this risk. Uh, I actually once had an elderly patient who began NSAIDs without me knowing it. And it's prompted me now to ask patients, since I last saw you, have you started any new medications? Do you use any new over-the-counters? Because an elderly patient on a blood thinner on daily prednisone uh, who takes NSAIDs is at risk for a bleed. So these people go on protein pump inhibitors very often. People now admitted to hospitals, uh, in some hospitals, are put on proton pump inhibitors routinely. These drugs are incredibly effective. They neutralize stomach acid very effectively, and as a consequence of neutralizing stomach acid, they really impair calcium absorption, particularly if people are taking calcium carbonate. This study in the American Journal of Medicine was sort of a preliminary study out of Canada to just show how effective protein pump inhibitors were in inhibiting calcium carbonate ingestion. Elderly patients given placebo, or, or given omeprazole and the percent of calcium absorbed. Well, you say, gee, it went from nine to three and a half. Is that a really significant reduction? Does that carry with it any true risk? Well, within one or two years of this appearing uh, in JAMA, there was this article showing that long-term PPI therapy was associated with an increased risk 
of hip fracture. So while we're trying to protect our patients on one hand, we're exposing them to un you know, unexpected or unanticipated risk on another. So in my, in my patients that are on systemic corticosteroids and they're on protein pump inhibitors, uh, either for my concern or for the concern of other docs they are on protein pump inhibitors, I make sure that the calcium they take is not calcium carbonate, but calcium citrate. Calcium's better absorbed under acid conditions. These PPI inhibitors are so effective at neutralizing stomach acid, calcium carbonate poorly absorbed, calcium citrate far better absorbed. Okay, so in some patients whose systemic corticosteroids are not enough, or in patients who need a steroid sparing effect, uh, in my practice I often use purine antagonists to achieve that goal. And I'm going to talk about two purine antagonists today that, are, that I commonly use. One is uh, azathioprine, uh, also called imuran, and the other is mycophenolate mofetil, also called Celsep. Azathioprine comes as a 50 milligram tablet. Uh, it's usually given at target doses of two to two and a half mg per kg per day. This drug uh, is subject to metabolism by three pathways. So you give people uh, azathioprine, the body breaks it down through three different circuits. One is thiopurine methyltransferase, which is an enzyme that processes uh, azathioprine to 6-mecaptopurine. And you can actually get a commercial test to see if people are going to metabolize this drug fast or slow. And some people do that. You may hear that, if, did you test your patient for TMP before you started? The other way to go is to avert the testing and just go very, very slow. This test is most predictive for how the drug will impact performance of the bone marrow, or not necessarily how to tell you how toxic it will be for the liver. Don't give azathioprine in patients on allopurinol. Allopurinol blocks another pathway that metabolizes this drug. If you inactivate xanthine oxidase or XO with allopurinol, all the metabolites that would have normally been broken down to inactive metabolites will feed into this and really create more 6-MP. And you can get a lot of drug toxicity if you combine uh, azathioprine with allopurinol. So, you know, please don't do that. That's a contraindication. Things to look for with azathioprine, something that uh, I call, it's very rare, it's rare as hen's teeth, I call it ears. It's early adverse reactions uh, to this drug, about one out of a lot, I don't know, 10,000 or so. Some people will take azathioprine and they will tell you after the first dose, I feel terrible. Worst case of flu I have ever had. I cannot barely get to the phone to make this call. That is valid. There are some people that are exquisitely and idiosyncratically sensitive to this drug for reasons that are incompletely understood. And for me, I always start with very low doses and I tell patients, if you take this and you feel ill, you call me and don't take any more. Uh, and I document that because it can't happen. I had a colleague at the NIH who's treating a patient with pemphigus. This happened. Uh, it does happen. Uh, be aware of it. In the GI literature, they do call it ears. They call it early adverse reactions. They see it in people with inflammatory bowel disease. They think it may be due to a polymorphism or an abnormality in a certain enzyme, uh, but that is preliminary. And uh, if it's known, I don't know it, uh, but I do look out for this potential complication. The other thing that I call to your attention is, is that this drug, which is a purine antagonist, meaning that it antagonizes a biochemical pathway that's very important in lymphocytes. And many of these autoimmune diseases are driven by the smart cell in the immune system, the lymphocyte. 
we, we always thought that these immunosuppressive drugs made people have a risk for skin cancer because they were immunosuppressive. Transplant recipients, allograft recipients at risk for developing skin cancer because they were immunosuppressed. That is true. The other thing about azathioprine is, is this 6-MP metabolite will actually integrate into DNA and serve as a potential mutagen. And that mutagenicity is amplified in organisms or animals or people, in theory, exposed to UVA light. So it may be that not only are our patients and allograft patients immunosuppressed from this drug and at risk of developing skin cancer, but it may be if you mix this drug with light that that combo will actually create mutagenic events in the skin that can create skin cancers. So another reason to photoprotect these patients Another reason to carefully examine the skin of these patients, that they have a terrible, god-awful disease. It affects their eyes, it affects their mouth, it affects their throat. Very time-intensive to go over that. Don't forget to look at their skin. They're immunosuppressed. They can have very advanced skin cancers right before your eyes, and your focal plane is just in another field of view. So keep in mind these drugs are immunosuppressive. Some of these drugs are mutagenic. A drug that's not mutagenic and that is appearing antagonist, though somewhat more expensive, is mycophenolate mulfatil. Uh, the dosing here is shown at one to two grams per day. Uh, I would say generally my patients that receive this drug receive two grams a day. I have had patients at three grams per day. If you want to see some interesting data, open the PDR and look at the complications that occur in allograft recipients who, see, who receive two grams per day versus those that receive three. The three grams per day adverse events will really keep you close to that two grams per day if you absolutely can. It's a very good drug, generally well tolerated. Uh, it's converted in the body to um, mycophenolic acid. Uh, I doubt that many of you are old enough to ever had reason to use that particular drug, but it's an old immunosuppressive, another purine antagonist. Uh, and it's a non-competitor inhibitor of the enzyme listed on this slide. Again, another drug that antagonizes the expansion, proliferation of lymphocytes, particularly T lymphocytes. Some people do have GI intolerance to this drug, generally less so than what I see with Imuran. Um, there, are, uh, there are risk for um, uh, uh, you know, increased incidence of bacterial and viral infections, as is true for immuno, any immunosuppressive and its pregnancy category C. The drug interactions are listed here. Please be particularly careful about this drug in patients who are on NSAIDs. Uh, if you had a patient with arthritis and they took a lot of NSAIDs, you would want to keep a very close eye on that, as well as people maintained on suppressive doses of acyclovir or gangcyclovir. So two purine antagonists that I've talked about today, one is azathioprine, one is mycophenolate mofetil. Uh, remember that the mycophenolate mofetil uh, has not been associated with chromosome breaks. Its mutagenic risk is lower than that of azathioprine. Um, I'm an older guy. I've had a lot of experience using azathioprine. Uh, it's a little less expensive. I often use that drug, folks, first but I, I certainly encourage people to photoprotect themselves, and if people are GI intolerant of azathioprine, uh, I encourage them uh, to give consideration for treatment with uh, CellCEP. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about biologics 
because and for many of these inflammatory autoimmune blistering diseases, biologics are increasingly being used, but I only want to talk about one biologic and I hope to finish up on track here. And the biologic I want to talk about is something that's commonly used in oncology but is increasingly being used in dermatology and that's a drug called rituximab. And the cartoon depicting rituximab is shown here. It's a chimeric monoclonal antibody that consists of a human IgG1 a foundation in the heavy chain region here, and a murine uh, monoclonal antibody that's been engineered on the FAB or the business end of the molecule. This particular molecule targets a, a, a protein called CD20. CD20 uh, is expressed on pre-B and B cells, and this drug is used uh, internationally to treat B cell lymphomas. Oncologists love this drug because the toxicity profile associated with this drug much lower than many of the chemotherapeutic agents, I'd say virtually all the chemotherapeutic agents that they administer. Um, there's two dosing regimens outlined on this slide. You'll see the first one says onc. That's what the oncologist used. And when it came into dermatology or when it came into rheumatology, we used the same dose. It's 375 milligrams per meter square weekly for four weeks and then repeated thereafter probably at four to six month intervals. Uh, there are now increasing numbers of rheumatologists, and I will say I was at an international meeting uh, last weekend uh, where this drug is being used to treat autoimmune blistering diseases where dermatologists are also using less of the drug, giving 1,000 milligrams on days one and 15, and then repeating treatment with this drug at 500 milligrams at six months out. It targets pre-B and B cells. These cells produce, um, are, are in the lineage for the production of immunoglobulin. Uh, but interestingly, this drug does not target plasma cells, so the long-lived cells in the body that make um, uh, high you know, immunoglobulin levels for months to years. And it's really uh, led us to ask the question, what do B cells do in autoimmunity? Because this drug is clearly diminishing not only um, the, the, the disease itself, it, it, it's really attenuating the T cells that are driving these autoimmune uh, diseases. And it's a, it's a drug that can be used not as monotherapy, but is, to date has been used in combination with some of the other agents I described earlier today, systemic corticosteroids, purine antagonists, other drugs as well and has really changed the course of some of these diseases. There's a large trial now in France for the use of this disease in pemphigus, where it is being given with prednisone um, early in the course of the disease uh, of pemphigus, which it can be a life-threatening blistering disease. Uh, and we hope to determine if this drug early in the course of these autoimmune diseases can change the course of disease, can, can attenuate or, or, or essentially put the disease into remission. And that to date, most of these drugs, these biologics have been used in people with end-stage disease where nothing else has worked. This is one drug where people have enthusiasm about trying it early. And the blistering skin diseases are a great drug because these diseases are in front of us. Uh, you can see them, you can measure them, and we have good markers for detecting autoantibodies in these patients' circulation, and um, you're going to see a lot more about the use of this drug in patients with uh, autoimmune blistering diseases that affect skin and mucous membranes. It does have side effects. Most of these side effects have been documented in patients with cancer. Most of these side effects are relatively rare. 
There's been a few cases of PML in patients with systemic lupus erythematosus who've received this drug. We don't yet know uh, what the real risk for, these, uh, for that is, uh, but we know that it, these drugs, uh, like all others, there's no free lunch. But we hope that if we can use them early and attenuate disease, that perhaps we can change the natural history of disease. Treatment with this drug is expensive, probably $20,000 for a course of disease. But keep in mind, treatment for many of these mucosal diseases that are orphaned are quite expensive. This data was put together by Grant Anhalt, a colleague at Johns Hopkins in 2002, at the time of another international meeting. And, and he estimated the annual cost to treat pemphigus at Johns Hopkins. Uh, prednisone and azathioprine, prednisone and mycophenolate mofetil, prednisone and cytoxan, one course of plasmapheresis to remove these disease-causing autoantibodies in people's circulation, or the, um, I guess you'd say the platinum-level treatment of prednisone, cytoxan, and plasmapheresis together. Um, coming in at $40,000 a year. If one course of chemotherapy, uh, particularly doses given uh, lower doses, because we don't yet know the optimal dose, um, could avert the course of this disease uh, and avert the morbidity that accrues in patients maintained for extended periods on systemic corticosteroids, averts hip fracture, averts GI bleeds, then uh, it, one intervention, even if expensive, could be cost effective. So today I've tried to really cover a, a broad waterfront. I hope that it was not um, uh, too uh, narrow, uh, uh, and I hope that it gave you some appreciation uh, for disease in mucosal sites, some common diseases, uh, some rare diseases, some questions you might ask of patients who have ocular, nasal, oral, uh, laryngeal, esophageal involvement, uh, and some appreciation of some guidelines to keep in mind when you're using local care measures or systemic care measures for the management of these patients. Thank you again for the invitation.